Welcome to the Ladies of Horror Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Tony, with The Misadventures of a Reader. One of the main purposes of the LOHF has always been to promote diversity in horror every day. However, June is Pride Month, and I have a very special guest today. We're going to be talking about the barrier gaze trope and the inclusiveness of the horror community. My very special guest today is Alice Collins, who writes the Trapped by Gender column for BloodyDisgusting.com. And the LOHF recently published a guest post by Alice about the use of descriptors and how they actually define people. Over the last year or so, I have seen the question, why is diversity important? If authors X, Y, and Z were as good as A, B, and C, wouldn't we be seeing their work more often? Why do we have to have these specific characters in horror novels? The answer to this question is complex, and I'm not really sure I'm qualified to give an answer, but I'll tell you my thoughts on it. Diversity in Horror Humans have this shared experience of just being human. However, there is more to a human's life experience than just being human. They love, work, and live their day-to-day lives. Each person's experience is valid and offers a new and different perspective on the shared human experience. This is why diversity in any genre is so important. As a reader, when you read a book that is written by a diverse author, you are getting a story that's told from a different perspective that's different from your own. Readers can learn something from that other perspective that may not have occurred to them before. Diversity also allows a genre to grow and evolve. When there are varied voices, the genre itself will grow. Diversity will bring new readers to the genre. A reader who may not necessarily been a fan of horror may pick up a book and continue to read within the genre. This will allow more people to come to the genre, thus in turn growing the reader base. It's really a simple concept when you think about it. The evolution of the genre will allow for more interesting reading and more concepts to play with and mesh together. How could this not be for the betterment of the genre? Personally, it's a win-win all the way around. The last point where diversity is extremely important is that of recognition of yourself. For a long time in the horror genre, to see a woman would be to see a victim. A victim which had been raped, tortured, and put through the most ghastly things imaginable. However, this is changing. It is important for people to see themselves in the stories that they're reading. When you see someone like yourself in popular media, then you have a feeling of belonging not the feeling of otherness that often accompanies being different than the majority in the genre. Now, these are only my thoughts on diversity and horror, but let's keep horror inclusive and evolving for everybody. I want to welcome Alice Collins to the LOHF podcast today. Uh, We're going to be discussing a popular culture trope that uh, Alice has recently wrote an article on that really grabbed my attention. So I just want to welcome you, Alice. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. You are very welcome. So the trope that we're going to be talking about today is the barrier gaze trope. Yes. So I know that you just recently wrote an article on it for Fishnets and Films, correct? Filming Fishnets, that's correct. Yeah, for their uh, third volume. Nice. So do you want to kind of go over the history of the barrier gaze trope for us? For those uh, listeners that don't really know what the barrier gaze trope means? Sure. Basically, the the main thing behind it is that the 
what I would call a lazy writer uh, uses the trope where they have a gay side character. Like, they're almost a main character, but not quite. And then they are killed off in some fashion that is used as motivation for the majority straight characters to rally behind and go do whatever thing they need to do. So do you want to give an example of barrier gaze trope in action? Sure. There are uh, a few different things that I can uh, I can list off for you. Um, there is the first one that always comes to mind usually for me is Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where Willow's girlfriend is killed off by a stray bullet not even meant for her. And then there is, happened in Supernatural as well, where they killed Felicia Day's character, Charlie, to give Dean the go to kill some neo-Nazis. Basically, they just kill a lot of gay people left and right because they can. Right. So is it primarily used for straight characters go after whatever it was that killed that person? Is that primarily when it's used or like... In a continuing narrative, yeah. Uh, In in movies, a lot of times it's used at the end as like a final shocker. Or um, sometimes it's been used to try to educate people. And people took away, you know, sort of the wrong message from from that. So it's it's been used in, in a variety of different ways. But more often than not, I notice it as using it as motivation for the main characters to do something about an issue. That sounds kind of like weird in a way, you know what I mean? Why didn't they have the motivation? Is it, it's like, it's like it's an, an emotional type situation. Yeah. It's a very reactive uh, kind of trope. Like it it makes you, you know, it makes you react very viscerally uh, to what's going on. At least for me, it's pretty visceral because it's not just like you can find a a, a billion straight characters and you can't find a whole lot of gay characters on, uh, on TV or movies. And usually when they're there, they're, they're, they're dead later. So it's sort of hard to find someone to uh, identify with as well. Um, like when I was younger, uh, and I first, uh, encountered the trope, uh, I was like, oh, is this what's going to happen to me? Is this what happens when people get into relationships? Do they, do they like go crazy and kill themselves or do they get killed by somebody? Is this, is that what's in store for me? Right. So it's, I can totally, I can, I can see that and I can understand kind of how that would play to you know someone who's younger that's in the lgbtqia community you and i have spoken before about the doctor who episode yes uh the most recent one uh or rather the most recent uh special they had a new year special instead of a christmas special this year and they literally introduced the one character and he had a like a single line of dialogue and was daleked like 30 seconds later so it's not like it's like an outdated trope like it's still very much in use and alive unfortunately and it goes back a long way too yeah let's let's talk about uh, a little bit about the history of the trope itself for the history of the trope uh it uh, i'm probably gonna stick mainly to film here because the trope reaches a lot further back uh, uh in uh in books 
basically it is an old trope that has been in use for almost as long as you remember you can that you can think of like it it even happened in uh, like the the picture of dorian gray um so like i mean it goes way way back in film i was able to find first instance of the trope i am going to butcher the name because i do not speak german uh it's uh the title of the film is anders als die anderen and it was made by a homosexual man named Magnus Hirschfeld. And uh, he, I mean, he, you could have an entire podcast about him alone. He was the first person who um, founded uh, the first ever organization to study and fight for the rights of LGBTQIA plus people in the history of the entire world is uh, starting in 1897 and um, interviewing patients who uh, were even too scared to say the word homosexual dealing with um, you know um, transgender uh, individuals and um, pioneering a lot of their surgeries um, he made a film uh, because he was seeing how all of these people were being treated and wanted to show the, you know, majority um, heterosexual audience, like, what happens when you ostracize a, a gay person and treat them bad? And, you know, uh, the it's uh, a film you can find on YouTube in its entirety. The uh, male character ends up uh, killing himself. Um, Magnus um, himself is in the movie. Basically, just sort of telling you, like, hey, gay people are not are not dangerous. They're they're, they're not, you know, gonna hurt you. Like, it's it's a natural thing. It's a part of nature. And he goes into a whole spiel about, you know, just, you know, instances of it uh, in uh, the animal kingdom and throughout the ages. So he was trying to introduce it to a heterosexual audience and make and kind of normalize it for that society correct that's what he tried to do um for sure um unfortunately he failed and since you know the majority of writers tend to be you know at least for film tend to be straight um they uh the writers just sort of took from the media they had available to them and and at the time, it was definitely that film, and, and it was in books, so it was an easy way in to have a different type of character uh, in, their, uh, in their movie. And you were, you, in your article, you shared an anecdote about Josh Whedon actually being confronted about, about you know, killing Tara in that manner, and he basically didn't really have an answer, did he? There wasn't really much of one. There seemed to be a lot of fumbling with words at the time, and there just seemed to be, like, whatever idea he could come up with on the spot. I, uh, like, that's, you know, like, I can't, I can't confirm or deny that. That was just my particular feeling on what I saw. And uh, at the same con that I met Joss Whedon, I also met Amber Benson, who played Tara on Buffy. And uh, I told her the story, and she looked confused and uh, said that the uh, only thing that had been offered to her um, 
at least, you know, through, you know, her agent and other stuff, was um, to come back to be basically this uh, mental torturer of Willow. Uh, uh, and she would be the physical, well, not quite physical, but almost uh, physical embodiment of the first evil, the thing that created all evil in the world. Not a good look. So uh, she uh, understood, you know, the, the power behind that trope and decided not to come back uh, for that. That sounds off to me. Well, you kill the the gay character's girlfriend, right? And then you have her come back as the embodiment of all evil. And That's that correct. That look is horrible. It basically I, I really... is like saying, okay, well, we killed her, and now she's coming back evil. And it, you can kind of loop it back to, well, she's evil because she was gay. The thing that's even that 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 makes it feel even ickier, it wouldn't even be Tara. It would just be the first evil using the image of Tara to torture. Like I can see, you know, like you know, seeing that would be pretty traumatic. But it's it's just not not great. And I, and I really also don't think that it was done out of malice. Uh, I just think it was done out of, you know, in ignorance of the trope. Because, um, uh, like, before it was called Barrier Gaze, like, that's actually a more recent name for the trope. Um, before it was called, before that, it was called Dead Lesbian Syndrome. I've actually heard that, that phrase used. I think I heard it on the L word, as a matter of fact. Yeah, uh, it, yeah, it was like, like, the Barrier Gaze really only came about as the you know, the trope name in around, I think, 2008. So, like, it's relatively recent. But before that, that's what it was called and definitely um, was on the L word. I, well, yeah, yeah, it was. It may not have been said in malice, you know, like, oh, well, we're just going to make her the, you know, the first evil because she's gay. But to me, as, you know, I, I'm not a member of the LGBTQIA plus community, that makes me uncomfortable yeah it, it it doesn't feel good no matter like which way you look at it it, it just it's achy so i guess that kind of leads me into something that is extremely important and um pretty much what you know the theme of pride month is for me at least is the fact that you know it's about inclusivity and diversifying like your experience as a human, because we, as humans, we all have the shared experience of being humans, right? Yeah. The only thing that's different is performance. Exactly. Do you think like representation is, is pretty important for me. I think that everybody should have themselves represented in media, whether it's books whether it's, you know, TV, whether it's, you know, movies, how important do you think representation is within popular media for the LGBTQIA plus uh, community? I think it's pretty important. It kind of gives everybody an opportunity to learn about other people, right? It learn about their experiences yeah. that are different from their own. But, you know, there's not, from what we can see, 
there is not that type of representation that I would call like fantastic because it's always there's always something about it. I haven't seen a whole lot of uh, media that I felt represented me. Um, I've seen media that that I felt represented me, and you know, just being a woman, I've seen media that I felt represented in as like a, a lesbian. But I, I really haven't seen much of uh, representation in the way of being transgender that um, has been positive for me. The closest I got was a movie I saw recently called Assassination Nation. And they had a trans woman playing a trans character and she didn't have a, a tragic backstory. All the, all the bad stuff that was happening to her was pretty much outside forces and not some kind of internal trauma or mental break or something like that she was just person just another one of the friend group do you think that type of representation is lacking within media today for i mean i I would say for for a good majority of the community um like the lgbtqia plus community that type of representation where it's not traumatic because everybody's a, a person right and everybody has a backstory, but do you feel that the type of representation now always comes with that type of traumatic backstory to it? I think for a lot of it, yes. Uh, especially when it comes to LGBTQIA plus people, they will definitely have um, some kind of tragic backstory and it just, it really go, comes down to lazy writing, at least in my opinion, because like there's a lot you can do instead of just falling back on these tired tropes, and you know people are choosing not to, you know. Um, it's it's very important, and I just really wish I could find something that you know like going into the LGBT section on Netflix is like, okay, let's find out which person isn't cheating on their spouse, which person isn't going to die at the end, uh, which person isn't going to be kicked out by their family, uh, which person, you know, like, 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 you just start scrolling through all of these titles and it's just like, Nothing is happy. Everything is tragic. Even the the even the comedies are are, are tragic. Like um, but I'm a cheerleader is a, a a great example. It is it it's very funny. It's a terrible setting. It's a you know a gay conversion camp. Out of all of the like LGBTQIA plus flicks that I've seen, but I'm a cheerleader is one of the very few that gets it. Like. 98% of the way there, and the only reason the, the, the 2% um, of it, you know, not being there is just that it's set at a gay conversion camp, and that is, you know, extremely traumatic for, you know, everybody involved, and they do show, you know, some people who, you know, quote-unquote graduate the program you know, and you just know that their lives are going to be sad, and it's, you know, like, it, it has a happy ending, nobody dies, but there's still that, that lingering feeling in the back of your, uh, in the back of your mind. Do you feel that in 2019, that 
representation is getting better. I know that you and I have talked about the chilling adventures of Sabrina the Witch, the Teenage Witch. Yeah, um, that's part of why I um, want to, you know, keep writing the, my Trap by Gender column on Bloody Disgusting is to show that it is getting better and to provide a bit of a narrative uh, to show the trajectory of how it is getting better and has been getting better through the years. Um, I see horror as a very progressive genre overall. And um, so, like, the way representation, at least in my observations, uh, works is, you know, uh, there was a quote from uh, Horror Noir that I saw, um, and it was like, first they get, you know, someone uh, someone else to play you, and then, you know, you get to play a marginalized version of yourself, and then you get eventually, you know, some better representation. It's like, it, it, it's like two steps forward, one step about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I really wish I had that one written down right now. Um, yeah. Representation is getting better. Um, like, like you said, uh, chilling adventures of Sabrina, they have a non-binary person playing a non-binary character on the show. And, you know, um, Sabrina is instantly, you know, just like, why are people treating you bad? And, you know, um, you know, tries to start like a gay straight alliance uh, in, her, in her school and like the first episode for this person, like the representation in horror is there. It is slowly getting better. It just it takes time. Two, uh, two steps forward, one step back is a great idiom to describe uh, representation, uh, especially for LGBTQA plus people. What I find really interesting is something that you said about horror being a very progressive um, genre, whether it's movies or books. And I feel that very deeply because I feel like there are you know, you're allowed to explore things more in horror than you are with maybe other genres. Yeah, uh, you are able to explore a lot more, a lot deeper social commentary through the veil of horrific circumstances that mirror um, real-life situations. Uh, Horror is really, really, really great with that. Um... And I also just like, like if like if you go back to like just it's just simply women uh, in film, a lot of the first examples of like strong women are from horror movies. Like you, know, you got the whole final girl trope and everything. Like that wasn't really happening a whole lot in other genres, you know. Um, so like I've always seen horror as very progressive in that way like it may not be great representation but it's a start and it's a way that that is used uh, to explore I can see that I can totally see that that's actually a really good point because I think that horror you can explore social commentary more without it being kind of frowned upon like you can't really do that in some other genres without it being like ooh, you know you can't talk about that or ooh, you can't you can't discuss that 
you know, and I think like my my favorite my fam my favorite filmmaker George Romero he did that all the time in in the the beginning of the franchise for you know the Living Dead franchise he really kind of took and explored different facets of so you know society that was happening at the time so yeah I totally I totally agree with you that you know horror is that that really progressive type of of genre. Yeah, it, uh, it 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 allows for exploration without beating you over the head with the topic. Yeah, yeah. Which is always nice. Um, uh, sci-fi does the same thing. I um, it's why I love them both. <laughs> and I, do you feel? And you, we've kind of touched on this before, just in our own personal conversations. You know you feel that the horror community in and of itself is pr- is pretty inclusive as far as, you know, the LGBTQIA plus community. Yes, uh, the horror community um, has been extremely accepting uh, of me, at least. Uh, you know, um, through my experiences, like I've been going to sci-fi and horror conventions for the past 27 years. And, um, it was, you know, they've, they've always been, um, a place of people who have been othered. They are places where people who've, you know, just, maybe they're a little weird or, you know, they're queer and they just don't know it yet. But it's like, it's a place where there's a little less judgment, um, than, you know, regular society. Uh, cause I mean... We're, we're we're weirdos. I mean, we we all are the horror community. <laughs> <laughs> I would totally agree with that. You know, because like we we've all experienced you know some form of ostracization. You know, even if you're not LGBT, just for either liking horror or like what people deem the lesser genres. So like those at the at the conventions, in my experience, have been you know they've been. They've had it happen to them, so they're a lot more aware of how they're treating others within their own community. I want to thank Alice Collins for coming on the LOHF podcast and for talking about lots of different things. Um, We talked about the barrier gaze trope. We talked about representation within media, whether it's books or film. Um, so thank you very much, Alice. I really appreciate it. And please, please, please continue writing amazing articles for Bloody Disgusting. Thank you. I plan on it. I got a lot more coming. There's already one waiting to be published for this month. And uh, I'll just keep throwing them at them as long as they'll have me. Yay. Again, I'd like to thank my special guest, Alice Collins. Make sure you check out her articles on bloodydisgusting.com and Films and Fishnets, and they will be linked in the show notes. As this is the LOHF, we do have some LOHF Pride Month recommendations. Uh, The first one is Danvers, The Reckoning by Rebecca McNutt, uh, Her Body and Other Parties by Carmen Maria Machado, The Bloody Mary series by Hilary Monahan, Grave Matter by Juno Dawson, City of Ghosts by Victoria Schwab, Fist of the Spider Woman, and this is an anthology, and it's edited by Amber Dawn. F4 by Larissa Elaine Glasser. The Luminous Dead by Catelyn Starling. The Drowning Girl by Caitlin R. Kiernan. And Devil's Call by J. Daniel Dorn.
This is just a small number of books written by authors in the LGBTQIA community. Emily and Alex are hosting a Pride Month Readathon this week. And if you have a look at the Pride Month Readathon Goodreads group, there's this huge list, as well as the list on the LOHF website. So let's talk about what I am currently reading. The first book that I'm reading is New Music for Old Rituals by Tracy Fahey. It's really good, folks. It's, I'm, I'm really happy with this book. The synopsis for it is, New Music for Old Rituals brings together a selection of stories that illustrate the pervasive power of the past and the present. Together, they present a strange yet familiar country where cautionary tales still serve a purpose where sacred sites of sea and forest, valley and forts hold power, where old legends live and where new myths are born within these pages. Bog bodies sleep. I love bog bodies, by the way. Contagion rages. Ancient rituals are enacted. Battles are fought. Ghosts linger and time stutters, fails, and turns back on itself. I've read the first couple stories in this collection and... What can I say? I am a sucker for horror that blends mythology and legend and all those wonderful folklore th- type things. Folklore is my genre. What can you say? Um, the second one I am reading is Diablo by Kathleen Kaufman. And Kathleen, if I said that incorrectly, please let me know. And here's a synopsis. Set Robertson, age 10, is a nest. Set Robertson, age 10, is the next matriarch to the society, a cultish matriarchal group living in the inconspicuous cul-de-sac in Venice Beach. When Set's mother is attacked by spirits from the old world, a failed exorcism results in Set's exile into the foster care system in Los Angeles. She eventually lands in the infamous McLaren Hall, a real and historically auspicious center for the disturbed and abandoned children in El Monte, California. Diablo is the sympathetic story of the devil in Los Angeles. The exploration of the true nature of evil and how intention colors what our definition of wickedness truly is. Set grows into a force of nature as she contains the potential and the mythology of the darkest degree, but discovers that perhaps the devil is not what we should truly fear. This releases on October 29th, just in time for Halloween. And Kathleen Kaufman is also the author of Hex, which I still have yet to read, but I've heard fantastic things about. So here are the new releases for June. It's, uh, it's a pretty good list, so here we go. New releases for June, Five Midnights by Anne de Villa Cardinal, June 4th. The Haunted by Danielle Vega, June 4th. This House of Wounds, Georgina Bruce, June 4th. I read this. It's, it's a really good book, by the way. Deep Roots, The Inns Mouth Legacy, number two by Ruth Ann Emery, Emmers, uh, June 11th. Teeth in the Mist, Don Kurtog, uh, June 11th. The Hungry Ghost by Delena Storm, June 11th. The Poison Thread by Laura Purcell, June 18th. When I Arrived at the Castle by Emily Carroll, June 19th. How by Renee Miller, June 27th. And In the Shadow of Spindrift House by Mira Grant on June 30th. The release that I am most looking forward to this month is When I Arrived at the Castle by Emily Carroll. And here's the synopsis. A castle, a killer, and prey, all bound and blurred by blood and lust. Like many before her that have never come back, she's made it to the Countess's castle, determined to snuff out the horror. But she could never be prepared for what hides within its turrets. 
what unfurls under its fluttering flags. Now, if you don't know, Emily Carroll is the uh, author behind Through the Woods, which was an amazing graphic novel. Um, So yeah, make sure you check it on out, please. Let's move on to some LOHF news, shall we? So as you know, this month is Pride Month. Make sure you check out some of the amazing guest posts that we've had for the month. Um, They are really fantastic, some very hard-hitting things, some very personal things in these guest posts, and they're really amazing. So I want to thank all the authors who put together their guest posts this month. And the LOHF Presents Stories of Horror is taking submissions still for July. If you haven't gotten your story into us, um, please make sure you do that. The theme of the month is Creature. So if you are submitting, get it into us by July 1st. You're going to send it to the LOHFpod at gmail.com. There are some submission guidelines, so please make sure you check out the submissions page. And our very own Barks Books otherwise known as Lori, has started our very own Goodreads group. Make sure you join that so you can stay up with uh, current reads and reading alongs. We also have a Facebook page too, and uh, make sure that you connect with us on there as well. On to some horror community news. Ginger Nuts of Horror has put together a horror blogger tribe with a badge. If you're a horror blogger, make sure that you join the horror blogger tribe, get your badge, put it on your website, and uh, use the hashtag to show that we are all promoting each other's work. That's it for this week. Uh, I don't have any more news, but if you'd like to reach out to the LOHF podcast, our email address is lohfpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear about new releases, news in the community, and suggestions for the podcast. You can find out more about the Ladies of Horror Fiction via our website at ladiesofhorrorfiction.com. The music for this episode is by the fantastic Nicholas Gasparini at thedarkpiano.com. Make sure you check out his dark ambient music. That's it for this week's folks. Uh, Make sure you check in next week when I'm going to be finishing Luella Miller. I'm still not sure what's going on there. Haven't figured out what Luella actually is, but I'm digging our heroine in the story. She's feisty and I kind of like that. And yeah, so have a great rest of your week and I hope you enjoyed the interview with Alice. And again, thank you, Alice, for joining me on the podcast and thank you for all of our guest posters um, this year. You have made our content fantastic. You have given, you know, your stories and I really appreciate it. So thank you and uh, yeah, have a good night and goodbye. Goodbye.